So uh, we're going to be looking at Romans 13, 11 to uh, 14. Oh, there it is. Okay, thank you. In more detail. So oh, let's see. This is not on, right? There we go. All right. You know it's going to be good because everything's happening. So it's good. Okay, so the epistle to the Romans, right? It's the longest of all the Pauline epistles that, you know, externally there's no doubt that this epistle was written by Paul. Every early list of New Testament books can, includes this among the writings of Paul. As early as the second century, it was regarded as being from Paul, and the early church fathers cited it as being authoritative. Internally, that is the language, style, history, and theology, it's recognized as uniquely Pauline in content and style of writing. Now, Bible scholars believe that it was written in Corinth about 57 A.D., it's the longest and most systematic unfolding of Paul's theology and was the basis for Martin Luther's teaching of justification by faith alone, by grace alone. The first 11 chapters, Paul expounds on his doctrine of justification by faith. In chapter 12, he moves into discussing the transformed life that comes from being justified by faith, beginning with what our overall conduct should look like, and moving into our relations to civil authority, and uh, then our, the first part of chapter 13, and then our relation to fellow Christians in chapter 13, verses 8 to 14, and then into our relation with fellow Christians who are weak in the faith in chapter 14 and most of chapter 15. And the rest of chapter 15 and 16 are Paul's concluding remarks and specific instructions to the church at Rome and his benediction. Now, at the end of the section, deal, dealing with our relationship with fellow Christians, we find our passage for today in chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. So it says, besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, as I said before, verse 11 is Paul's wake-up call to the church. Paul begins this command to wake up with besides this. And the this he's referring to is the outline he went before. All this chapter 12 and everything describes what it means to live as a Christian on this side of eternity. Using a series of commands, many of them difficult to follow, Paul has painted a picture of a believer as a person who sets himself aside for the good of others and radically trusts God to provide all that is needed. Now, Paul begins to describe why it's so essential for the Christians of that time to live this way, to be awake. Time was of the essence. The world was changing right before their eyes. Paul writes to the Roman Christians that the hour has come for them to wake up in the sense that the sun is about to rise, so now it's time to get to work. Similarly, today, we see the world changing right before our eyes. Old book here from 1970. In 1970, writer Alvin Toffler and his wife Adelaide Farrell wrote a book called Future Shock. 
Future shock was the term they coined to describe the condition that affects people in societies when there is too much change in too short a period of time. One of the basic premises of the book was that not only is change happening quickly, but the rate of change is also increasing. In other words, while it took many centuries to go from an agrarian society to an industrial society, it took less time than that, 150 years, we went from industrial to post-industrial, and then in about 15 years, from the post-industrial into the information age. And I don't know what comes after that. There's probably more after that. But the idea is that change is happening faster and faster. So just as it was for Christians in Paul's day, so it is for us today. The world is changing, and probably not for the better. Right? We need to wake up. It's time for us to get to work. So how important is it to be awake and not asleep? You know, it's possible to do a lot of the same things in your sleep that you do when you're awake, right? We can talk in our sleep. We can even hear things in our sleep, right? We can walk in our sleep, as our little picture shows. We can even sing in our sleep. And, of course, we also think in our sleep, and that's what we call dreaming. So just as with those things that we can do while asleep in our natural life, it's possible for us to do many Christian things and yet essentially be asleep towards God. Because we can do many religious things and still be asleep toward God, it's important for us and every Christian to make sure that we are truly awake and active in our life before God's. And Paul adds, since you know the time. Now here he gives us another reason to be wide awake and sleeping, since we know the time. There was an era when timepieces, watches and clocks, were virtually unknown to the common people. Such was the case in Paul's day. With no clock towers, you know, sounding the hour, no watches, no artificial lighting, other than torches or firelight, the schedule of day and night controlled the world. Almost all work was stopped when the sun went down, and work started again when the sun rose. I suppose that probably gave rise to the aphorism, a man works from sun to sun, but a woman's work is never done. But I'm not, I'm not going there. Nope, nope. <laughs> Ain't going there, okay? So today, <laughs> almost everyone has access to the time of day, whether it's by a clock, I have a watch, we have our computers, we have phones, everything has a time on it, right? So there's no excuse for us not to know what time it is. But Paul is using a metaphor here. The word used for time in this clause, since you know the time, is the Greek word chiron, which means a definite epoch or era. And in fact, other verses in the New Testament, this word is translated as season or proper time. By contrast, the word translated as hour in the next clause, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, is the Greek word aura also Spanish, which usually translates as hour, but can mean time in general, like we say que hora es, right? So the King James Version translates this as now it is high time to awake. So Paul gives us two reasons why we should be awake and not asleep, because of the way in which we are to live in this world as redeemed people, and also because of the season of time we are living in. Paul then adds a third reason for us to be awake, one that is far better than the first two because he says, now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So is Paul here stating that the church of Rome was made up of unsaved people? Was he saying that he himself, note he says our salvation, was he saying he himself is not saved? 
Of course not. The Greek word used here for salvation is soteria, from which we get the term soteriology, which is the fancy word we use in theology to describe the doctrine of salvation. The same Greek word is also translated as redemption in Luke 21, 28, where it says, Jesus says, but when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. But in most cases, it's translated as salvation. Paul had just spent the first 11 chapters explaining justification by faith. That justification is the salvation that begins our journey as the children of God. During our journey, we experience salvation as we are sanctified step by step, piece by piece. Here Paul refers to the salvation that is to come when we shall join Jesus in heaven. The New Testament often describes salvation as something that has happened, something that is happening, and something that will happen. In this case, Paul's referring to salvation in the sense of what will happen when all who are in Christ have reached eternity, and the fact that the time of ultimate victory and judgment is fast approaching. God's timetable is clicking along. We do not want to be asleep with no oil for our lamps like the unwise virgins in Matthew 25. Paul then continues the analogy in the next verse with the night is nearly over and the day is near. Now between Malachi and Matthew, there was 400 years with no prophetic record, a dark night of no revelation from God. And since John wrote Revelation around 96 AD, we think, there has been no prophetic utterance from God, a dark night of almost 2,000 years. Paul is telling the Christians of his day and the Christians of our day that that night is nearly over. The break of dawn is very close. Paul is comparing the absence of Jesus from his people to a dark night. And he furthers that comparison by saying that when Jesus returns, it will be like a new day dawning. Note also that darkness and night in Scripture are often synonymous with ignorance, evil, and sin. Paul is saying that we are currently living in times of ignorance, evil, and sin. And that was almost 2,000 years ago. He could be writing about yesterday's news. But Paul also says not to worry. The bright day of Jesus' return is coming soon, and all ignorance, evil, and sin will be dealt with and disposed of forever. Praise God. But Paul is also comparing the life we live now in this imperfect world to the life we shall live when we are with Jesus in heaven. And he says this life, tainted by sin, is like living in darkness compared to the life we'll have when we're with Jesus and live in the light of his wonderful presence. Remember, this is this Paul, the same Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see through a glass darkly. And earlier in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he wrote, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. In the light of his presence, we shall behold the full splendors and glory of redemption in heaven. And they are such that we cannot even imagine what it will be like. But we know it will be as different as day is from night. Paul then warns us to let us discard the deeds of darkness, considering that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, Paul exhorts us to discard the works of darkness. These works are detailed in the next verse, but let us look at the word discard. The Greek word 
is apothometha, which means to put aside, to get rid of. Various other Bible translations render this as lay aside, put away, and cast off. The real sense of the Greek word is a violent throwing away of these deeds of darkness. It's almost as though Paul is telling us to violently, forcefully throw off the deeds of darkness in a revolutionary manner, like overthrowing an evil totalitarian dictator, which is exactly what we're supposed to do. Once we have salvation in Jesus, we can no longer serve the prince of darkness. We need to revolt against his reign and submit to the reign of the king of light. Paul then goes further and says to put on the armor of light. So not only are we to discard, forcefully reject the deeds of darkness, we are to put on armor to protect us in the fight against the darkness. You know, Paul wrote more about the armor in Ephesians 6, where he wrote, Finally be strengthened by the Lord by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the gospel, with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Now, we're not going to look at the armor of God in detail, but I want to point out that the armor consists of seven separate items as listed here, five of which are defensive, and only two are offensive Listen, offensive weapons. The defensive weapons are the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, sandals of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. The offensive weapons are the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and prayer. And even prayer might be considered a defense, which really leaves only one real offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the God, word of God. The point here is that the only offensive weapons we have, prayer and the word, are related to communication with God. In other words, if you're going to reject and cast off the works of darkness, you need to be in close communion with God, studying his word and having a robust prayer life. In verse 13, Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty. He says, Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and junk drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul implores us to walk with decency as in the daytime, that is, to conduct ourselves properly and decently as we walk in God's eternal light, doing everything decently and in order. Once we have renounced the deeds of darkness, we must forsake them and walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. Paul then lists three sets of sins, which are the deeds of darkness referred to in the previous verse. But don't think this is a complete list of sins to avoid, while the other sins not on the list are okay. No. No, these are representative of whole classes of sins. And you already know we should avoid all sin. The first set, carousing and drunkenness, 
are sins we commit against our own bodies. The Greek word for carousing is also translated as reveling and rioting. Carousing itself means to engage in a drunken revelry, to drink hard, that is, drink often and lots of it. Drunkenness, of course, means to be intoxicated by alcohol. I'm sure we all know someone who can drink lots of intoxicating liquor and yet remain sober. Just as there are some people who drink one beer and get tipsy, this set covers both types of people. Those who can drink and not get drunk, and those who get drunk is at least provocation. In either case, they're doing a great disservice to their bodies. Intoxicating liquor is not good for our bodies. And we are warned to not be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The next set, sexual impurity and promiscuity, covers the sins that we commit with someone else. Sexual impurity is exactly what it sounds like. Sexual acts committed either outside the bounds of marriage or within marriage, but still sinful. Promiscuity carries with it the same idea of sexual sins, but with the added aspect of shamelessness. That is, sexual sins flaunted openly, even, dare I say it, because we are in June, with pride. This last set, contentions and jealousy, are sins we cut, we commit against each other. They're relationship sins that break the bonds of brotherly love, usually because we place ourselves and our interests above those of our brother or sister. Other translations have the word strife or contentions instead of quarreling, but the idea is fighting or arguing over the least little thing instead of covering differences with love. Jealousy can also be called envy, and it's related to the word zeal and the idea of zealousness. But it's more than just desiring what someone else has. It's the idea that what you have should really be mine, belongs to me, and I'm going to have it, no matter what the cost, even if it makes us bitter enemies. It's the opposite of being content. And it's like telling God that he doesn't have my best interests at heart at all. Because if he did, I'd already have what you got. So Paul covers all the sins that we commit against ourselves, with someone else, and against each other. These are the deeds of darkness that we are to renounce in order to walk in the light. Paul winds up this chapter with two commands in verse 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly a strange command. What does that really mean? New Testament scholar and Bible commentator Leon Morris says, putting on Christ is a strong and vivid metaphor. It means more than put on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, signifying rather, let Jesus Christ himself be the armor that you wear. You can see this goes way beyond what would Jesus do. It means that we should consider everything that happens to us as if it were happening to Jesus, and everything we do as if Jesus were doing it. It means, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, to let the mind of Jesus be in us. That is, we should have the same attitude as Jesus did, no matter what happens to us and in everything we do. But note, we must throw off the deeds of darkness before we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, 
The rags of sin must come off if we put on the robe of Christ. There must be a taking away of the love of sin. There must be a renouncing of the practices and habits of sin, or else a man cannot be a Christian. It will be an idle attempt to try and wear religion as a sort of celestial coverall, overall, over the top of old sins. So this is no cover-up. This is a genuine reflection of Jesus in everything we do and how we react to what happens to us. We'll table the last part of verse 14 for now, but don't worry, we'll get back to it. So there we have Paul's commands to a sleepy, sin-ridden church to wake up, throw off, and put on. But how do we put these commands into action? I want to look at some practical ways to obey these commands. First, how can you wake up when we're spiritually asleep? Well, number one, prioritize pursuing wonder. Did you ever watch a young child, one to whom almost everything is new and unknown? If you have, you know that they see everything with a sense of wonder and awe. Remember, Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the hallmarks of little children is their sense of wonder. Wonder can enlarge, enlarge your perspective. When you encounter wonder, the transcendent awe you feel helps you see beyond your circumstances to God, who offers you hope that's greater than your circumstances. Life can often get busy and stressful. However, if you allow life's demands to prevent you from paying attention to wonder, you'll be spiritually asleep, unaware of God's purpose for you and unable to recognize God at work in your life. If you choose to intentionally pursue wonder, though, you'll start noticing the signs of the source of that wonder. That's God. You'll see that everywhere. Everyday miracles will become apparent to you. As a result, you'll naturally become excited about growing closer to God, which will wake you up spiritually. Number two, approach prayer as an opportunity rather than an obligation. Prayer, talking and listening to God, can become just an empty ritual when you're spiritually asleep. But prayer is meant to be an awe-inspiring experience. God has made it easy to communicate with him. And it's an awesome privilege to be able to do so. If you take that privilege for granted, however, praying can seem like a chore when you're busy or distracted. You may think it's okay to neglect this vital practice until an urgent situation compels you to finally communicate with God. Or you may feel guilty that you haven't communicated with God in a while and you try to catch up occasionally as if you're only fulfilling a duty that you can check off your list. But if you connect prayer to wonder, if you really expect to experience God's presence with you and in you, and you truly believe that God will communicate with you, you'll recognize that the process opens up wondrous opportunities. Colossians 4.2 urges, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Psalm 104.34, may my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. Start expecting to encounter God in wonderful ways whenever you pray. Then you'll be motivated to do so on a regular basis, and you'll be blessed as you do. Number three is, be willing to learn every day. G.K. Chesterton said, the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth 
is to close it again on something solid. We need to be feeding on meat, not milk, the solid food of God's word. Abraham Lincoln said, I don't think much of a man who's not wiser today than he was yesterday. Enough said. Can't argue with honest Abe. Sorry. <laughs> if you're not a lifelong learner, though, you'll be, you're spiritually asleep. God proclaims in Isaiah 43, 19, look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it's coming. Do you not see it? Every day God gives you is full of opportunities to learn something new. In the process, he inspires you with wonder that can wake you up spiritually. Let go of attitudes that are blocking you from awe-inspiring learning. Rather than sticking to familiar routines, plan new experiences in your schedule. Rather than avoiding risks, move forward boldly to learn about whatever sparks your curiosity, Speaking, st stepping out in faith. Pursue learning activity every day however you can, such as by reading, engaging in conversations, traveling. Allow yourself to wonder about every topic that interests you, and then let that wonder lead you to learn more. Try to live with a clear mind and an open heart. The more you learn, the more you'll feel inspired to thank God for the wonderful world around us, which will wake us up spiritually. And of course, study the Bible to learn more about God. You could read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation many, many times and still not know all there is to know about God. Number four, ask the Holy Spirit to renew your mind. It's vital to ask the Holy Spirit this because we have to be alert spiritually. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 2 reminds us. As the Holy Spirit works in your mind, you'll be able to perceive the wonder of God's work all around you. You'll also develop the fruit of the Spirit, listed in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Each one of those qualities can wake you up spiritually, clarifying your perspective and leading you to experience awe and wonder in everyday life. Number five, use your senses to the fullest. Your physical senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, can be powerful tools for you to use to access spiritual wonder. As you do so, you can wake up to the reality of what God's doing around you. Spending time in nature, for example, gives you opportunities to use all your senses and wake up spiritually in the process. Your creator's qualities are displayed in the creation. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. You can watch a sunset and ponder the light of hope that Jesus offers the world. You can listen to music and let it evoke deep appreciation in you for the harmonious order of creation. You can smell the fragrance of a rose and feel awe for the sweetness of God's love. You can taste one of your favorite foods. Just don't do it too often. <laughs> and, and, and savor gratitude for God's gift of it to you. You can pick up a rock on a nature hike and let it remind you of God's rock-solid trustworthiness. The more you use your senses physically, the more you can wake up spiritually. If you look for how your senses can connect you with wonderment and connect you to God. Next, how do we cast off the deeds of darkness? 
The Jews have a ceremony they perform on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. It's called Tashlish. Tashlik? Anyway. The ceremony is based on Micah 7.19, where it says, He will again have compassion on us. He will vanish, vanquish our iniquities. You, can, he, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So for this ceremony, the Jews go to a body of running water, like a river. And you know, all rivers eventually lead to the ocean, right? To the sea. And they cast bread on the water to represent the casting of their sins into the depths of the sea. Now, I'm not recommending this, but the verse it's based on has some good advice for us. He, that is God, will vanquish our iniquities. You can't throw off your sins without the Holy Spirit empowering you, living in you, and working through you to sanctify you. However, we are not powerless. Once we have the Spirit working in us, if you're caught in a sin, no matter if it's a sin against your own body, a sin you commit with someone else, or a sin against somebody else, you're a slave to that sin. So how do you break the chains and become free from that sin? Well, the first thing you need to do is be proactive. This means, as Dirty Harry said, you've got to know your limitations. But you know what tempts you. Be vigilant and conscious of what's happening so the sin doesn't take you by surprise. Avoid situations that you know are dangerous. Acknowledge that you're weak and powerless. Allow God to be strong on your behalf. All the incredible power he has, a power so huge that he created the heavens and the earth from nothing, is available to you. Ask God to pour it over you, to baptize you with the Holy Spirit so you can stand fast in that moment when sin is standing at the door and knocking. Jesus is at the throne of God making intercession for you. The next practice is what they call radical amputation. If you remember what Jesus said about your body members, he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Radical amputation. Not body mutilation, but radically amputating every avenue through which sin enters and be radical in cutting it off at the source. For example, if you're tempted to watch something on your computer or a TV that you shouldn't, turn the device off. Leave the house if necessary. Mike Cleveland, who founded Setting Captives Free, a ministry that helps people break free of pornography, was an airline pilot. At every hotel he stayed at, he would invariably find himself drawn into the sordid pornography that was offered on the cable TV channels. When God finally set him free of that addiction, when he got to a hotel, he would disconnect the TV, remove it from the hotel room, and take it down to the front desk. He, so he would, be, he would not be tempted to watch stuff he knew he shouldn't. That's radical amputation. Similarly, if you're tempted to gossip or use sharp words with someone else, close your mouth and walk away. You, you have to choose. You have to choose what you're going to do. Next, fill your free time re reading the Bible. Fill your mind with heavenly things. Seek fellowship and encouragement with like-minded individuals. Learn to use your time as an instrument of righteousness so that you don't have time for your own lusts and desires. Confession. It's a requirement for poor sinners like us. We must confess our sins to God who is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Billy Graham said, I often compare sin to a chronic illness, for that is what it is, a spiritual illness residing in our souls. A chronic illness may go into remission 
or not bother us as much as it once did, but it's still there, lurking in our bodies and waiting for an opportunity to overcome us. The same is true of sin. I have always tried to follow the advice I heard a preacher say many years ago, keep short accounts with God. When you know you have sinned, confess it to God immediately and seek his forgiveness. Then ask him to help you avoid that sin in the future and to live a life that is more and that more and more honors Christ. What great advice from one of the greatest evangelists we've ever seen, right? Keep short accounts with God. Don't let your sins accumulate. Confess them right away. And lastly, how do we put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's review what Paul told us to put on. In verse 12, he told us to put on the armor of light. Then in verse 14, he adds, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So are these two different things? Or is it one action described two ways? Well, let's look at some of the assumptions that Paul makes when giving these commands. Firstly, Paul assumes that those who belong to Christ, who are redeemed by him, are already children of the light, children of the day. We have been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are new creatures in Christ, children of the Most High God. What remains is for us to dress like it, live like it, and fight like it. The clothes, the life, the fight do not make you a child of light. They show that you are a child of the light. Another thing to keep in mind is that when Paul talked about putting on Jesus Christ in Galatians 3.27, he said, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Which means that the putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that's already been done. Baptism is the acting out of what happens by faith when you are redeemed. And what happened was you put on Christ once and for all. Which means that the command to put on Christ is a call to become what you already are, a Christ wearer. So Paul's commands to put on the armor of light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ are not instructions to be saved again. They are a call to Christians to be what they already are in Christ. We are children of the light. Now we need to dress like it, act like it, and fight like it. But what is this armor of light? Well, we look briefly at the armor of God, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, Paul writes something very similar to what he's writing here in, in Romans. Where he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. So here he equates armor, the King James Version uses breastplate, as being faith and love and the helmet as the hope of salvation. Paul's use of only these two items does not negate the rest of the armor. They're just the most important, faith, love, and hope. So when Paul says, let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, he means it for us to put on faith, love, and hope. If you sleepwalk through this world, you will be affected by the weapons of darkness aimed at your chest and your head. That is your emotions, your will, and your reason. These weapons are not meant to scare you. No, no, far from it. They are intended to lull you into a glitzy, entertainment-saturated sleep filled with material goods. The only way to stay awake is to put on the armor of light, faith, hope, and love. But faith in what? Hope in what? Love for what? I think we can see a parallelism between verse 12, put on the armor of light, and verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is that we should put on faith in Jesus hope in Jesus, and love for Jesus. 
It means our armor against the wiles of Satan is Jesus Christ. We wear him as protection against the devil's deceits, tricks, and deceptions. Faith in anything other than Jesus is futile. Hope in anything other than Jesus is misplaced. Love for anything other than Jesus is deadly. So put on faith in Jesus and hope in Jesus and love for Jesus. This is what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? Well, one way is by looking at the nature of faith, hope, and love, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So put on Jesus by immersing yourself in the word of God. Hope comes from the promises of God. So put on hope or put on Jesus by remembering the promises that God made and has kept. There are some promises he's made that we haven't seen yet, but he has made plenty that we've already seen. Love comes from an intimate relationship with Jesus. So get to know him. Get to know him better by spending time with him in prayer and meditating on his word. Remember, he loved us first so that we could respond to him in love. But to look at the rest of verse 14, the part we skipped over before, which says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word provision means literally forethought. So the whole verse could be translated like this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let any thought in your head that would lead to a sinful desire, not just the gratification of the sinful desire, but even the desire itself. And you know how this works. We get a certain thought. Then we dwell on that thought, turning it over in our mind. We hear Satan say, it's not that bad of a sin. You know, the old ruse, right? Did God really say? No. That thought, allowed to simmer in our minds, can awaken sinful desires. Paul has in mind here the three classes of sins he mentioned before. Sins we commit against ourselves, sins we commit against others, and sins we commit or with others, and sins we commit against others. So the point of this last part of verse 14 is, don't let any thought into your head that could possibly give rise to the desire to commit one of these sins. Remember Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God. For the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments, and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Clothing yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ is just the beginning. The real work begins when we have to strive to take every thought captive to obey Jesus. This is a tough job. So here are some ways we can accomplish that. First thing is accept responsibility for your thoughts. You have the ability to exercise control over your thoughts. God warned Cain to focus his mind on the right things. But Cain chose to think about the wrong things, anger and jealousy, which led to his murderous actions. With God's help, by putting on Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can gain control over your thoughts and think godly ones instead of ungodly ones. Next, change your mind. Not just your behavior, your mind must be changed. God calls us to change sinful behavior that does not honor him. But instead of focusing on your outward behavior, work on disciplining your mind from which the behaviors stem. Allow God to transform you by the renewing of your mind. 
Think through your problems. Don't just react. Don't laugh. This is one of my, this is what happens to me. When you experience difficult challenges, you can react to them and think yourself into despair every time. Or you can look forward to the next opportunity and ask yourself what you learned from this failure. Is the first thought, I'll never do anything right? You don't have to get trapped by devilish thoughts. When you have these types of thoughts, go to God's word. Read about the wonderful promises he has made to us. Number four, confession. Take your disabling thoughts captive through confession. Turn them over to God by confessing your sinful thoughts and attitudes. It's hard work to take your thoughts captive each time they pop into your mind, but it is possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. Choose to focus your thoughts on the right thing. Philippians 4, right? We are to think about those things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. When we think about those things, God promises to give us his peace. What a contrast that is to the thoughts of millions of people today. Don't look to a movie, a TV show, or a how-to book to accomplish this for you. It takes personal discipline and commitment to the things of God. And lastly, it is difficult. It is possible, but it's difficult. It's not easy to retrain your thoughts or to respond in new Christ-like ways. But take heart. As God empowers you to focus your mind on the right things, it will become easier. You can develop a new frame of reference based on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. So there you have it. Christians need to wake up. Quit sleepwalking through life. Be alert. Our enemy prowls about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to throw off the deeds of darkness. We have been rescued from sin and its end result at the great cost of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. How can we live in darkness when such a bright light has been shown on us? And we need to put on the armor and the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's not we who live, it is Christ in us. We should present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service. So if you're here today and you don't know what Jesus did for you, let me expel it, spell it out for you. Jesus came to this earth, holy man and holy God. He lived a sinless life, and he gave up his life willingly on the cross to save you from your sins. When you accept him as your Lord and Savior, his death on the cross covers all your sins, past, present, and future. It's your choice. Today, you may think you're wide awake, but if Jesus isn't in control of your life, you're just sleepwalking through life. If you want to be really awake, not woke, but awake, <laughs> <laughs> repent of your sinful life, have faith in Jesus, and follow him. Remember, it's your choice. The red pill of acknowledging how wretched you are and how much you need Jesus, or the blue pill of deliberate ignorance and the life of sleepwalking. It's your choice. Christians, we have a choice as well. The blue pill of sleepwalking through life and being ineffective for the kingdom of God, that's the easy choice. Or the red pill of waking up, throwing off, and putting on. That's the hard choice. It means struggle and hard work but think of the contributions you can make to the kingdom of God if you're wide 
awake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word that has been given to us, Lord. We thank you for being able to study your word. We thank you for being able to just learn more about you and about what you do for us. Lord, help us today to, to wake up, to throw off those deeds of darkness, and Lord, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in everything we do. Help us, Lord, today to be more and more like you and to do your will and not ours. Lord, we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.